Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. The theme tune down, down, down the into my headphones. I'd just be right. I'd be right there with you. Would you prefer? Let right me sing it to can you? you. Can you sing it? Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Well, it's not. It's more just a. It's just audio. Don't make fun of it. All right, guys, you know what it is. We're back on the podcast. Today, our guest is from the land down under, Paul Nevison. You might remember him from the June wrap-up, or maybe you're one of the 364,934 people who watched on YouTube the smash worship hit Above All, or maybe you recognize him from the background of the Rob Bell podcast. It's Paul Nevison. He's back. Wow. Here I am. Wow. Yes. From such illustrious um, uh, appearances. Thank you, Luke. That's very exciting. We're glad you're back on. I'm happy to be your background guy, I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we were going to do a podcast uh, in LA together, which you said you couldn't talk about the stuff that I want to talk to you about... (laughs) Um, for whatever reason, not that I'm still bitter about that, but I was going to play that, uh, your, your song, your above all oh, song really? yeah. during the podcast, but instead I had to just play it on the, <laughs> on this car stereo. <laughs> when I played it through the car stereo. Yes. It's a, yes. you know, it's great. I like it. And for that, you, for that YouTube play, I can thank you for the 0.01199 cents that I got from my, my yeah. illustrious uh, royalty checks, which I get in a quarter yeah, for that welcome. song. You're welcome yeah. for that. You know, maybe we get yes. all the listeners to go over there and maybe you'll get a quarter out of it. Maybe, maybe. If I can it, live in hope. Yes, yes. And um, in a lot of ways, you're the, um, like you're the poster boy of dreams coming true on the podcast because many of us heard you in the background of the Rob Bell podcast that was you and i don't know what it's like for you but i can only imagine like you just thought of where you came from just two years before you found the podcast on itunes and then there you were right there, there watching it happen watching it happen pushing the space bar on logic pro yeah was that exciting you you're a dream you're a dream uh, a dream weaver for sure <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be forever forever grateful <laughs> that there you were in the background yes, doing that yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and obviously we also know you from the uh, the Joel Houston podcast, in which yes, I'm I'm your resident background guy, right? Yeah, you were. The, I mean, you were just talked about. You weren't actually there for that. Oh, one. true. That's true. But I felt you, like I was there, maybe. Yeah, but you. <laughs> the only thing you told Joel is, yeah, Luke's kind of sarcastic. That's the only thing you warned him about the podcast. Pretty much. <laughs> I said he had, you know, like Luke often gets some pretty good guests from time to time, but he's very sarcastic, and that's about all I told him. <laughs> I like the I said, one... I, and I said he's from Texas. Good luck, you know. <laughs> I like when you're describing the only thing that comes to mind is Texas and sarcastic, which, to be well, honest, I don't know what else you really mean. That's pretty yeah. much it. Well, it's, this is what you talk about mostly, so. Yeah, yeah. and you... You really didn't believe that I would steer clear of any Justin Bieber references in that interview. Well, I mean, you, you did pretty well to resist. Uh, I'll give you that. Yeah, you told me not to, but you still thought I was going to ignore your suggestion and make a Bieber reference. Well, you, you can make Bieber references now if you like, just mm-hmm. to get it out of your system. But I didn't do it. I, I respected uh, I, I stayed in my yeah. lane. Yeah, you were Yeah, well done. Gold star. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, this is... Uh, it was exciting. We met we met in LA, and uh, we were both wearing matching black 
V-neck shirts and Wayfair Ray-Ban sunglasses. Um, it's like we're brothers from other mothers, just divided yeah, we, by we, a, we, uh, a big wall. <laughs> that kept we you got the memo. Country. Yeah. We got the memo for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, goodness. Well, let's talk, Paul. So you had, uh, there's, this is just a tough transition to joke around to jump into what we're going to talk about today. Like there's no, there's going to be no more smooth segue. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's no easy way to get from that to this. Um, so it was probably, I don't know, like two weeks ago, I'm sitting my kitchen table just across the way here. I'm in my house today recording this and, um, I'm sitting at my kitchen or dining room table eating some uh, bacon and I have my computer up. I'm looking at a sermon and I get a bring bring from the FaceTime, and it's you, and you're you're teleporting in from somewhere where there's landmines that's preventing you from walking somewhere. That's correct. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do remember. I do actually remember you eating bacon, which uh, was was anyway. Uh, it would have gotten you in trouble yeah. at where, wherever you were. You could be eating bacon. Well, yeah, you couldn't you couldn't eat bacon where I was. Um, but yes, no, we we're on the border of uh, the Jordanian border like right on the Dead Sea, and there was, oh, and it was too good to be true, it was this kind of rickety old fence with a bit of barbed wire, but then these huge kind of signs on them saying, landmines, don't enter. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a photo opportunity, for sure. But then a little after that, what we didn't realise is that all those fences are, have like really kind of sensitive um, monitoring and sensors on them, so then this army vehicle turned up about five <laughs> minutes after I stopped talking to you, so I just got out. <laughs> And they're like, what are you doing? And we're like, this is, a sen- this is a sensitive area. And what are you doing here? And we're like, oh, we're just stupid tourists, like, you know, did, getting getting some photos. Did you explain to <clears> them <throat> about the podcast? Well, <laughs> if, I th- if I thought it, it was, a, it was probably about one of the last resorts and I thought it was going to get me out of trouble. But, um, okay, so. Evidently, did... the, the newsworthy name isn't know- that well known. Wasn't um, that newsworthy there? In the Middle East. No. no. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. Yeah, I don't have yet. a ton of listeners from there, but uh, I think if we all um, combined and put our social media platforms together, we can get over to the Middle East. Um, so yes. that, okay, you were doing a couple different things. Right, that like we're going to talk about your trip um, to uh, just outside Damascus in a second, but that was that was a separate trip, right? There was all one trip. It was like a three week trip, but we had several projects that we were working on. Um, so we were, first we were in Israel um, to shoot some music stuff and also to shoot part some content for a documentary series that uh, we were working on, sort of based around the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then the second half of the trip, we went to Lebanon uh, with uh, World Vision to uh, visit the Syrian um, refugee camps. That you know, there's two million refugees that have flooded into Lebanon as a result of the civil war. So we were there um, to you know document that. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a pretty pretty life changing experience. You sure. said that you had to uh, to fill up proof of life questions. Can you explain what those are? Yes. So that was not what I was expecting. I mean, I've, I've traveled to some interesting places over the years. You know, I've made documentaries and film stuff. Um, you know, I've been to a lot of places and seen some pretty terrible things. But it was the first time I've actually had to fill out what are called proof of life questions. So it's basically if you get kidnapped, uh, you have these questions that you've pre-filled out so that when the kidnappers call, um, you know, the 
your your fa- friends and family can ask these questions that only you know the answers to to make sure that you're actually still alive. Um, so, what were the questions that you were you gave? Oh, the, you know, it was stupid. They said make it you know the most stupidest things. So I was like, you know, what was your the name of your first pet, and you know, what's your what's your favorite ice cream flavor, and all those kind of things. Um, but it was just one of those things. You walk into a briefing thinking, oh yeah, no problem, and then the security guy gets up and talks about, you know, you're going to a moderate, moderately dangerous place where there have been known kidnappings, and you're right on the border with Syria. Um, and just as a precaution, fill out these proof of life questions just in case. Cool. So yeah. you know, slightly disconcerting. Um, I, but I yeah, mean, it was you know. I kind of feel that way every time I leave Texas. Like, I feel anywhere that's not Texas, I'm just not that safe. Because there's not as many guns. Yeah, you, you might be right there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so you think... I mean, there is a reason I haven't been to Texas, and it is probably the, the ratio of guns to um, crazy people. No. They just, if everyone has them, we're all safe. Um, so if uh, you, you fill the proof-of-life questions, which is kind of your like tip of the hat, like maybe something is different about this trip because you obviously have been to some pretty crazy places filming, uh, telling stories from uh, not-so-ideal places in the world uh, or places that, have, that are in I- not-ideal situations. Um, was, this probably, was this the worst place you've ever been in terms of the, like, the tragedy and the suffering and the danger of it? Um, I've, yeah, it's, it's one of them. Um, you know, I've, I've been to, you know, a lot of, a lot of countries around the world and, you know, I've done stuff with, um, involved with human trafficking and been involved in, you know, um, stings that have, you know, uh, you know, police operations that have, you know, rescued, you know, really young girls from the sex trade, which is, you know, really disturbing. And I've, you know, been oh. to India and parts of Africa and, you know, sat with families when their children have, you know, died just a few days before from like things like diarrhea and you know so I've seen a lot of really horrible things I think well, the thing with is with uh with Lebanon was the scale the scale of the of the issue with you know two million people just in Lebanon alone and there's something like you know 12 million displaced people um in Syria uh and so you know some of them are in Turkey they're in Jordan they're in uh Lebanon um, and then there's several million that are displaced within the country. Um, so just the scale of it was 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 pretty mind blowing. And then also the lack of hope and the the hopelessness was I found really crushing um, because you know often we go and I work with NGOs who are doing work and you know there's sort of a ray of hope even in amongst the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but in this current situation, which is still unfolding and getting worse day by day. Um, it was hard to see any light at all, really. And then that was sort of compounded by, by the fact that when you, like a lot of the discourse, you know, here in Australia and, you know, in other parts of the Western world, there's sort of a debate going on about whether the, the Syrians are actually worthy of our help. You know, there's a lot of sort of mm-hmm. rhetoric that goes around. And I think that was sort of quite crushing when you actually sit face to face with a family and they tell you their story and you see what they're going through. And you see that they're not that dissimilar to yourself. And then you think about the, the conversations that you hear, you know, in the workplace or, you know, on the, on the television or what the politicians are saying. And then you, you, it's, there's, a, there's a big disconnect between that kind of rhetoric. And then when you see people that are really just, they're just, they're just fleeing for their lives, you know, and I, I would be doing the exact same thing if it was me. No. Yeah, um, so I guess I, that was probably the most the most challenging thing. Um, 
to see something that's still very fresh and raw and unfolding. Um, and and then all I can do is like it challenges me to how do I live? I mean, there's massive geopolitical reasons why civil wars happen, and uh, you know it can be very complex, and you can get very paralysed and overwhelmed by that. But in the end, like it comes down to well, I'm responsible for my actions, for my words, for how I decide to live, um, and how do I live out my faith convictions in the face of a humanitarian tragedy. Um, such as this, which, you know, the UN says is the worst humanitarian crisis that we've seen since the World War Two. Yeah. And so somehow, you, we've, somehow we've made it all about ourselves. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to making it about ourselves in a second. But you said it seems like there's no hope. Obviously, the idea of, you know, 12 million people who, because of a civil war in their country, they just, they're gone. You said some of them were carrying around their keys to their home, like like as a necklace or something and and they just up and left and they want to go back home but there's no hope there's like there's no hope that it's going to be resolved and they can get back hope, home is well, that the- well I mean it's a complex situation in the war I mean there's a ceasefire at the moment but you know who knows what will be the final outcome there it's a very become a very fractured place um, but I think what was most surprising is is when you talk to these families they all told us with, they sort of, sort of, you know, they joyfully spoke about their lives before the war. They spoke about, you know, they went to school and, they, and their families and they, they, were, they would go on picnics near lakes and they talked about their farms and they talked about the lives that they loved, like we would. Yeah. Um, and, and they all desperately want to get back to those lives. I mean sort of the average a person as a, as a refugee, they say, is about 17 years. So there's not a lot of hope. Wait, presently. say that again? Like the average length the of average, someone? The average length somebody as a refugee is at least 17 years. Um, so that's a big chunk of your life. And, and these people, all of them, without, with, you know, all of them wanted to go home. They couldn't wait to go home. And as, yeah, they, some of them had their house keys. Um, with them, with that hope that eventually they'll go home. They don't want to come to Australia or America or Europe. They do that because they're fleeing for their lives. They want to go home. They love their lives. Um, these are educated people, mostly middle class, teachers, doctors, uh, farmers, taxi drivers, um, students. These people that just want to get back to their lives, you know, and they've had their lives interrupted um, by, you know, by massive violence and cruelty. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. So the, hope, the hopelessness in it is that they are living in this limbo, this sort of no man's land where, where we were in the Becker Valley, which is sort of those mountains on both sides. And on one side, it was like a 20-minute drive to the center of Damascus in Syria. And on the other side is, you know, where the rest of Lebanon is. And they were literally in this no man's land where this limbo where they can't go home, they don't have any official status um, in Lebanon, they can't work. Um, they're just stuck, and, and I, you know, and you know, we met this one family, and he was he was 26, and he was like a martial arts champion, and he was just before the war, he was about to go and compete in some world sort of championship. He was that good, and he had a young wife and a four-month-old baby and a five-year-old boy and a grandmother, and you know, and he has the responsibility for this family, um, and to kind of guide them where he has, you can't lead them anywhere because they're stuck and they're in these sort of tent settlements, which are really awful, um, very basic. 
Um, and so, you know, like we were sitting in this, in this tent with them and, and eventually we were sort of just rendered speechless because, you know, you try to ask questions and eventually as, as they told their story, like the, the grandmother had just had open heart surgery and, you know, it had bought her some life, but it had also, um, they also now also needed like a $650 medication bill, you know, um, every month to keep her alive. I mean, $650 is a lot for me <laughs> in yeah. Australia a month, let alone you're a, you're a refugee that gets maybe $150 a month. And then they've also got to pay rent on top of that for these little tents that they live in. They've got to pay rent to the farmer whose land that's on. They've got to try and find food and it's terrible. So anyway, we're talking to this, this dad and, uh, He's only 26, and we sort of naively, you know, we're sort of grasping for any silver lining. Like, what gets you through? Is there some joy? Is there something that you find, um, with, even within these horrible these circumstances, that gets you through? And he just sort of started laughing in this kind of, you know, frayed at the edges, kind of slightly desperate laugh. And he says, um, I, I, I walk in the valley so I can cry. And it was just like, it was just kind of like the hammer blow. And I just put my camera down after that. I stopped filming. I, was so, I just didn't want to be there anymore. I was just like, this is terrible. Um, and because, again, like we sit as I sort of have processed it, processed it now, I've thought like while I empathized with them and I was, you know, I felt sorry for their predicament, it was actually, I ended up realizing it was actually also about me. It was like I wanted to get out. I didn't want to be confronted with that hopelessness. The hopelessness was so crushing that I actually realized that a lot of it was about sort of alleviating my anguish rather than being able to sit there in silence, in solidarity, to look another brother in the face and feel their pain and sit with it, you know, and not try to escape from it, not try to run away from it. Um, and that was sort of the most decent thing we could have done, which is end up what we did do. We just kind of sat in silence and we wept. Um, it, was, it was sort of the most decent thing you could do to actually feel, feel the pain with them and not try and, you know, give some kind of trite comforts or... Um, you know, try to find a solution. You know, we're also so, so solution focused. We need to fix it, fix it. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can't. You just need to just. Sometimes the love of Christ is sitting there, in it with people and just feeling it with them and letting it, letting it overtake you. And that sometimes that's all you can do, right? Yeah. So when you were asking him, like, what's the silver lining? What gets you through this? You're you as you process the way that you're asking the question in hindsight, you think that you're asking that question, not for him, but for yourself so that you feel better about what's going on. Yeah. Because I think we're so ill-equipped, uh, particularly in the West, we're really ill-equipped to deal with suffering because our societies are based around comfort and are based around winning and are based around, um, everything being good. And so when we're faced with, um, utter tragedy, I think we're sort of ill-equipped to really deal with it. So as I kind of processed it, you know, days after, I was thinking about that moment and why were we grasping for questions? Why were we grasping for light? Um, and I realized it was really about making us feel better because we just weren't used to facing that kind of pain. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I mean, and that was a few, after a few days processing. At the time, I was just thinking, oh, you know, like how can we tell a good story and how can we, you know, because part of the reason we were there was to like film a story that actually helps people that haven't been connect with the issue there and, you know, empathize and, and, and be, be engaged in the, in the, um, in the crisis. Um, but yeah, as, as a few days passed, I realized a lot of it was just about 
our our lack of ability to deal with pain and anguish and mm-hmm. the the tough side of life. Do you think there's any way that you can be prepared for that kind of suffering other than just actually having to see it and see the despair and see just the the atrocities that humanity can inflict upon itself? I, I, I mean, is there... I, so we're texting back and forth about this and I, I don't even know what to say back to you as you like, you're processing this, you know, we could, whoever go, we're talk, talking about it and I'm just going, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I can't, I think one, one time I just said, I'm just going to go cuddle and hug my daughters. Cause that's all I could think to, to do. I mean, there's nothing to, mm. to say right there. Just, this is awful. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, there, I mean, there is nothing that prepares you. Um, even though like, I've seen a lot of things and I thought I'd be fine. Um, and I also, you know, uh, you know, I'd read a lot and, you know, you know, done the academic kind of work to un- try and understand a really complex situation. But there is nothing that prepares you for, for the smell and the, the, to be able to look into someone else's eyes and when they describe what they had fled. You know, we met one woman who literally fled about 20 days earlier from, like, extreme militant uh, controlled area where, you know, all the worst things you could imagine were there, the way they were controlled, you know, public executions and punishments and brutal, horrible, horrible stuff, you know, and she talked about how her children had been made to witness a lot of this barbaric, um, these barbaric acts. And, you know, there's nothing you can say to that. I mean, that's just, just the worst of the worst, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so within that, <clears throat> um, earlier in the trip, I had, uh, we were in Jerusalem and I uh, went to the Holocaust Museum and you know that's a really confronting experience because you are really faced with the worst of humanity what we can do to each other uh, and it's you know it's a very sobering and you know really quite a painful experience but within that there are these little bright lights of these people that actually stood up against the Nazis and uh, there was this one village in France where there was a, you know, a pastor who rallied basically his villagers to save, they saved about three and a half thousand Jews and they sort of, you know, they hid them and then they um, got them out into Switzerland. And, you know, the Gestapo come to the village and they say to this pastor, you know, where are the Jews? Where are the Jews you're hiding? And he says, the pastor says something along the lines of, I don't know what a Jew is. I don't know. We only know what human beings are. And so, for me, like it's that attitude, it's that kind of spirit that actually, that is the resurrection life. That is the thing that actually helps us do something in response to things that are overwhelming. Because you look at the numbers and it's paralyzing and it's like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? But I think you have to really get back to well, what does my faith say? What is, what is my understanding of the words of Jesus? Like particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 25, um, you know, uh, those kind of ideas when you sort of, you have to get back to those and how do I outwork those in my own life? Um, that's where you start to find, find hope. Yeah. In it. Um, it's not, a, you know, there's no magic fix and it's, it's not like, oh, there's a magic wand that you can just wave and it's all going to be good. But you can make a difference for the one, you know, and that's sort of the history of the church um, is making the difference and, sh- and the resurrection life affecting the one, affecting the one, affecting the one. Um, and I guess for me, what was the most disturbing about this crisis is um, that, you know, generally when there's a humanitarian crisis, we're all agreed that, you know, if someone's, uh, you know, suffering from war or disease or persecution or famine, 
you know, Christians in general say, oh, we need to, we need to help that. That's, that's a Christian thing to do. That's, that's part of our faith to actually help those that are in need. But when you look at some of the rhetoric around this crisis, like there's a debate about whether, whether the Syrians and um, Afghans and Iraqis, whether they're actually worthy because we've been fed a lot of fear to be fearful of the other. Um, and I guess for me, that's been the most disappointing thing. And that's why for my, I can only speak to myself that I've had to actually, you know, detangle all those messages of fear that you hear and actually get back to the tenets of my faith and then let that inform the way I act as opposed to just the fear-mongering and getting caught up in the, in the, in the tide of rhetoric that seems to be floating around. Um, yeah. Particularly, you know, with our leaders, you know, like leaders who ferment the fringes, you know, and then the, then the, then the fringe becomes the norm. And, um, you know, it's disappointing. You know, it wins your votes, but makes you a terrible human being. <laughs> yeah. So you told me a story about an amazing human being. It was, um, I believe, a Palestinian Christian who had been, you know, surrounded. And uh, but maybe you can tell the story about the guy who refused to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know what I'm talking about? yeah, so we were we were there filming lots of content about people who are doing exactly that, living out the Sermon on the Mount, living out these kind of crazy words that Jesus spoke. You know, that kind of can seem, you know, completely countercultural. You know, and we met Israelis and we met Palestinians and uh, from all sides um, of the divide with all different perspectives. Um, but we met this one Palestinian uh, man who was uh, was a revelation to me. I've got to say, um, he's he can trace his family's connection to the land back four generations to the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, and he is living on this land. It's a farm, and you know, then after the 1967 war, where his land was was sort of uh, annexed as part of Israel, and. Uh, and he's surrounded by, you know, settlers, by um, settlements. Um, and so they're, they're slightly aggressive towards him. And these settlers, you know, they got bulldozers and they got, they got all these boulders and they blocked his road so he can't have vehicle access to his land. Um, they cut off his water. They cut off his electricity. Um, they uh, uprooted his, you know, cut down his olive trees, you know, 250 olive trees, his, his vines. Um, he's no, he has no permission to build on his own land, so they live in these caves. Um, generally, he's in this, been in this 20-year court battle with the, with the government about the ownership of his land. Um, and he's harassed often and daily. Um, but in spite of all that, at the front of his property on these five uh, different rocks and five different languages uh, is written the statement, we refuse to be your enemy. And... Um, and this is a guy who's a, who's a Palestinian Christian uh, living out the Sermon on the Mount. He refuses to be the enemy. So when the soldiers come with their weapons and the settlers come with their guns, he sort of meets them with an urn of tea and says, fine, you're going to do what you're going to do, but first have tea with me. You know, this, is, this, this is him living out the loving your enemy. You know, not just the guy that cuts you off in traffic, but the person who actually wants you to be gone. And he just says, we refuse to be your enemy. And they talk about peace and they talk about... Uh, and they also run these, uh, in the summer, they run these um, classes for Arab children, Christian children, Jewish children, um, art classes and music classes, and trying to just 
foment peace, you know, because there's there's conflict all around. But you know, children aren't born with hatred; they learn it. So, mm-hmm. um, so they get children together and they try to actually foster some kind of understanding. So this was a guy who was. You know, and he, he, he said it wasn't easy. Like, he's not like some kind of like walking on water, floating on clouds. Like, it's, easy, it's difficult. And I said, yeah. well, how do you love your enemy? And he says, just, just one step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you know, you just have to do it over and over and be obedient to the hard sayings of Christ. Um, and, you know, and it was the way that he spoke. Because you find in that, in that part of the world, there's a lot of truth. You know, you talk to Israelis who will tell you about, you know, suicide bombings and there's truth there. And then you'll talk about uh, a Palestinian who is, you know, angry at the government because of the way they're restricted and the way they can live. And there's truth on both sides, but it's how there's that truth delivered. And I found with several people we met, there were people who spoke truth, but they kind of spoken in a very angry, bitter way, you know, for good reason. You can understand why they're angry and bitter. And then we met several others like this guy who just who spoke truth but with a gentleness and with a Christ-like spirit that um, I had never encountered before. And it was super challenging to me um, about, again, how do I live out these words in my life uh, where I'm not challenged. Like, I don't have enemies, you know. I mean, it's it's the blessing and cursing of geographic isolation. I live in Australia. I was born in New Zealand, a tiny little island at the bottom of the world. I live in Australia, which is a slightly bigger island. But, um at the bottom of the world. I mean, America's the same, has, has, you know, you have some borders, but you pretty much can keep to yourself. And you can think, well, that's none of my problem because I live so far away and that's their problem. Um, but the curse of, the, of that isolation, and, and I mean, obviously that isolation gives you a certain amount of peace as well yeah. because you're not rubbing up against neighbours and there's not sort of the same sort of um, chance for conflict. Um, but it's also a cursing because you think, well, I'm not part of that. But actually we are. I mean, it's our sins of commission, um, as well as our sins of omission that actually make us a part of all these problems. What do we do? What do we fail to do? Um, that actually makes us a part of it. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's a super challenging. Yeah, it's definitely easy to to get caught up in. Well, that's a whole world away from us. We don't we don't live there. We don't know anyone there. It's different. And um, yeah, I think the the story you told about the uh, the French priest who said, "I don't I don't see Jews. I just see human beings." I think that's a really powerful story for us to be reminded of. Like these are mm. just people and you tell stories about the 26 year old dad, um, who wants to take care of his kids and his mother-in-law or grandma or whatever. And like, it's really humanizing. And it seems to me like your job as a storyteller is to humanize these stories in such a way that people don't just keep on going with their life. Like there's the yeah. old, uh, there's a scene from hotel Rwanda where, uh, one of your, co-workers a film person or whatever he's called is over there and he you know a, a local from Rwanda says oh as soon as the people see this in the news they're going to do something and he says no they're going to think oh wow that's terrible and then go back to eating their dinner right yeah and it seems like that's like your job is to humanize this in such a way that people can't just go about with their day, day-to-day life without thinking about it ever mm-hmm. do you I would imagine I would have a lot of pressure on my shoulders to tell a convincing story so people have to stop and, and analyze how they're a part of this or what they can do to help fix it. Yeah. Well, I was talking to a friend just after this trip and he, he kind of, he said exactly, well, this is your job. He said, your job is to go in to fully feel and experience people's pain or their joy or whatever it is. And then to actually transcribe that for others. 
Um, and that's exactly what what your the job is. And you do feel the pressure because you don't want to manipulate, you know, you don't want to, uh, you want to be as truthful as you can to allow people to, you know, empathise with the humanity of it. Um, because, you know, again, I was talking to this, this young father who was, you know, he was in his, you know, he was probably 30, 32, he's a school teacher. And he talked about, he was from one of these militant controlled areas and he talked about, you know, the violence and he talked about the restrictions. And he said to me, he says, that was as foreign to us as it is to you. He said, that's not Syrian. Like, so mm. the people getting their heads chopped off and, you know, all horrible things that you'll see on the news and you can read about. He, as a Syrian, was saying that was foreign to us. We'd never seen anything like that. Um, it was it was as horrifying to them. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, as a storyteller, you want to immerse yourself. You have to immerse yourself. You have to allow yourself to feel um, so that then you can accurately transcribe that for others. Um, you know, I can't remember exactly who the quote was, but it was like, uh, I think it was T.S. Eliot or someone like that said, if there's, or anyway, I'll have to check someone. who actually said this. Someone, someone much wiser and, and more intelligent than me said, no tears in the read, uh, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. So it's the idea that you have to feel it. You have to allow yourself yeah. to go there so that you can accurately, um, transcribe it without manipulation because that's my, the thing I hate the most. You see a lot of things and they're very manipulative um, and they're trying to push you. What's the difference in like telling a humanizing story and being manipulative? I think it's the agenda. What is the agenda behind it? Hmm. Um, am I, am I, is my job to just help you see a reality and, you know, and as you know, the quote from the Hotel Rwanda to not just go back to your dinner or is my job to actually uh, to prosecute a certain narrative for other political or ideological reasons? Um, so for me, like pure in the heart, you know, uh, those that are pure in the heart, you know, uh, pure in the heart, um, that, for me, that's, I guess, how I see it. Um, because again, like, for, particularly when I would be making things for a Christian audience, it's again, it's helping you tap into the core tenets of our faith. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, that Jesus hasn't already said, that the church has, hasn't already got a long history. Um, you know, often when everyone's leaving crisis situations, it's the church that stays and continues to minister. The local church isn't going anywhere. They don't parachute in and parachute out. They're there and they are there, you know, ministering, bringing resurrection life one by one as they can. And I mean, that's the great strength and tradition of the church. Yeah, um, and it's a, you know it's the chapter of the church that makes me the most proud, where other chapters you know make you less less proud. But that is a great strength. And so when I'm making films, I, I really want to tap people back into that. That I'm not telling you to do something against your will. I'm actually just telling you about what Jesus said. You know, and there's multiple parables about you know love. Who is your neighbor? You know, it's always the question. Who is my neighbor? Yeah, and that's... you know, and that's the thing. Like like I was, I hadn't seen it before. But I was, as I was sort of writing and meditating on this, it was like, you know, you look at Leviticus and that's where the first kind of reference of love your neighbor is. And it's about, you know, your fellow Israelite. And then Jesus takes it a step further, say, well, your neighbor is the Samaritan, the outsider, the one that's despised. And then he takes it the step further, raises the stakes, says, actually, your neighbor is also now to include your enemy, the Roman occupying soldier whom you hate and who persecutes you. They are now also your neighbor. So ultimately, he's saying, we have no enemies. We just have neighbors. And how should we treat our neighbor as we would like to be treated? So, I mean, that's revolutionary, radical, uncomfortable thinking because that means I have to change. It means I have to maybe be um, 
put my comfort aside for another. You know, that's what I loved about Pope Francis, where he has sort of, you know, it was symbolic, but, you know, they took in some families into the Vatican. And he talked about, you know, that every family or city or whatever should, should take, in, take in families. And, and it will cost you something. And, uh, and that's sort of just the way the gospel is. Like, it's not a, it's always costly, you know, mm-hmm. in some way. But I, I don't really see any other way to live. Yep. Um, particularly, you know, when you're confronted by it, when you see it face to face. I mean, what other option do we have? Yeah. So this is a, a trip you went on from or through World Vision. They're they're the NGO or the nonprofit, as we call them, the states who yes. got you there. And so at the um, the Hillsong show concert worship night, whatever you just to call it, in Texas, they had a little bit about this um, the refugee, you know, Syrian refugee crisis. Is this going to be something that Hillsong ties into as well? Is this something that they're going to be? Um, I mean, what is like the the next step for this story with World Vision and what you're doing with them? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, it's you know, yes, Hillsong United are partnering with World Vision to you know to bring us a, a you know to highlight the situation and you know, as part of the worship nights, there'll be a moment where where they talk about what's going on and. You know, and the great work that World Vision are doing. I mean, they are an incredible organisation. Uh, you know, we were there in these in these tent settlements, and you know, seventy five percent of Syrian kids are out of school, but their World Vision are providing these sort of informal tent schools where these little six, seven, eight year old kids are coming in and getting some, you know, being kids, being kids again. And we went there and we, you know, played some music and we saw these kids being kids, and it was a beautiful thing. And um, for me, it's like that's 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 the important thing because I think about these six, seven, eight-year-old kids in ten years' time when they're teenagers. You know, what will their experience of this tragedy be? Will it have been experiencing some love, mercy, kindness um, from people like World Vision, um, or will it be rejection, um, um, misunderstanding, hatred from you know from a Western world that just didn't understand? And I mean that has massive ramifications on the, the course that those of those children's lives of what they will become in adult life, and it's something to consider. Um, yeah. I so mean, yeah, I mean, World, World Vision are doing beautiful work. Um, you know, it's a big problem, uh, and you know, money's part of the answer. Advocacy, you know, just you know, the small, this is a small thing. So I was away. We came back from this trip, and I went away for a few days to rural Queensland, where I live. And we met some family members who are, you know, salt of the earth, farmers, um, you know, elderly people who have never been to the Middle East, probably never met um, a Muslim person. Um, and, you know, all they listen to is what they've heard on the radio, talkback radio, and they've heard the news. And, you know, this, this guy sort of says over to me, he says, oh, what about these Muslims? Oh, they're a bit dangerous, aren't they? You know, he didn't really know what he was saying. And then I just explained to him what I've been talking about now, my experience of actually, no, these are pretty normal people who want the same kinds of things that you and I want. And then at the end of the conversation, he was like, oh, I never really thought of it that way. Thank you for, thank you. And, you know, and, and again, it was just a simple way to just to just move, move the conversation a few notches to a bit more of a wider, more compassionate perspective. Yeah. Um, I guess that's all you can do. I mean, yeah. it's, you go full frontal trying to argue things. You, you get nowhere, but um, as Ian, our friend Ian Cron says, like when the front door of the intellect is closed, the back door of the imagination is open, 
and that's yeah. where art comes in. That's why music's important. That's why filmmaking is important. That's why writing's important. Um, these things oh, that actually so help you podcasts are important. Um, yeah, I think he did say that. Uh, and then, you know, you can help people experience something without their intellect getting in the way. Not that you just, you know, you throw away the intellect, but sometimes you need to be able to feel something before you can think something. Yeah, yeah. Um, the old, you know, tell all truth, but tell it on a slant, right? The, yeah, they can exactly. say, Yeah, sometimes you got to do that, and that, that's what artists like you get to do. So you, you came back, you went on holiday, as you would call it, with your family. Was it weird going on holiday right after you know, being around an awful tragedy? Yeah, I mean, it's, that always messes with you. The, the very fact that as we were driving out of the, the, the camps that I got to drive away and those families are still there. And well, that's, that haunts you. It's why I wrote what I wrote. It's why I talk to you and talk to a lot of people because it's, it haunts you because it's unfair. It's completely and utterly unfair. Um, so, you know, but you, you then also appreciate what you do have. You appreciate your family. You appreciate the freedom you have. You appreciate the options, the choices. And then you're challenged to go, well, what do I do with those options? What do I do with those choices? What do I do with my voice? What do I do with what's in my hands? I mean, these are the challenges, right? And now mm-hmm. my challenge now is what do I do as far as a practice goes? Um, because that's always the thing. You can be moved. But, you know, eventually emotional things will subside as you get distracted with the, the daily things of life again. But what is your practice? And um, that's why I actually probably should speak to our friend Jared McKenna again about, about um, yeah. the practice. Because what they're doing with their first home project where – uh, is incredible. They're doing actual physical stuff that is making a difference, um, and it's those kind of things that you that you want to do something. You know, giving, you know, donating to World Vision or other organisations that are doing great work. That's one thing you can do. Um, but for me, it's like it's actually like seeing the face of the other, like exposing yourself to other stories, other narratives. Um, like I have to think, how many Muslims do I know? You know, not many, and so. That, that's, that's what dispels fear. When you actually see the face of the other, meet the face of the other, um, then your fear sort of goes away and you realize people are just people. We're all image bearers, right? Yeah. All image bearers of the Father. And, and you see a lot of people that are calling out desperately for bread and I just would pray that we don't give them simply a stone and you know we definitely don't give them a serpent. Yeah. Um, so, so that's for me, I'm still trying to figure out what my... What my, what my action is what do i do what do i do practically like i'll make a film about this it's one thing but i need to do more than that hmm. when uh when do you think we'll see that film uh, i don't even know <laughs> well actually i have to have something by the end of the end of the month that will go on the hillsong united tours oh, okay and it's going to be a very it's going to be a difficult film to make uh just because we were, weren't there for very long and and it was actually one of the hardest filming. I just didn't want to film. Like it literally felt like a voyeur, you know, sucking the last bit of life out of people that have lost everything. So it was actually very difficult. How many how many times did you actually put the camera down and say I just can't film this? Uh, a couple of times. Yeah. I, I was like I was with another guy who was who was less empathetic than me, so he kept on filming. <laughs> 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 so you know so like he just he was just hard-hearted he had a yeah. hard stone whereas i was just like like jelly yeah you're um, you're basically just like jesus that's yeah good. pretty much pretty yeah. much yeah okay so, so uh 
we'll hopefully uh, this will get out in a month, and I'll obviously link it, and all uh, all of us can take a look at what you were working on. But um, you know, it's um, yeah, a lot of stuff to think about. Okay, yeah. so um, there's a great well. Oh, there's a great um, you know. So this is the thing with with information is important, language is important, and it's there's a great piece that John Oliver did right. And this is the the sad fact that the best journalism <laughs> is now being done by comedians. Yeah. But John Oliver um, did a piece on how the media talks about refugees, and it's brilliant. It's like 20 minutes of um, how we've demonised people without really realising it. Um, so I'll send you that link, and you can you can link to I, it because I don't know if I can brilliant. Keep my job and my day job and post a John Oliver video. Um, <coughs> I'll being, live a little, will you? Being an independent filmmaker and being a pastor, you you get away with different <laughs> things. So yeah. <laughs> so um, we still can't talk about this other project you're working on, right? You, you told me last time you won't talk about it. You still can't, can't talk about it. I can't talk about it, but okay. We will, at, at some point, we will talk about it, but just can't. Uh, okay, so we won't talk about it in detail, but like. That's all right. You just need a little mystery in your life. It's good when, for you. when my dad and I were like, were given like some suggestions and notes. Whose suggestions do you think are more likely to be included, my dad's or mine? Can I say it's a feature film? Can I say that? Yeah, you can say it's a feature film. Yes. Otherwise known in the um, states as a movie. As um, a movie, yes, yes, yes. So whose uh, who's, whose notes do you think you're you're gonna like move oh, forward with more? It's tough. I've got to say, like, I mean. I'm I'm still really meditating on that Luke. They were so weighty that I, I yeah I haven't quite come to a conclusion on that yet. But I will let you know. My people will contact your people. Yeah, I mean we're really like just like a, a father son like Scorsese combo, right? You know, like you just put us <laughs> together, and <laughs> in a different life, you know, we could have been doing that kind of oh yeah big you stuff. May have well have missed a calling. I know. Sure. Sorry, Dad. We'll try it next time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Paul. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.